Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness, Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. <laughs> Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Gonna run that as the, the open. open. Do you remember when superhero movies were lighthearted popcorn fare instead of overwrought epics? The Incredibles 2, which is absolutely delightful, recalls that time. That's Matthew Rossa of Salon.com. Thanks so much for checking us out here on Cinephile. As always, give us some love on iTunes. I read the reviews every time. We had a few a while ago. I've noticed they've slowed to a trickle. So please help us out. That's how we keep this thing afloat. I rank my movies at a four-minute beliefs. Please rank us at a five stars and leave a written review. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. And I'd really appreciate that. Thanks so much to Keith Oberman, who was our guest last time on Cinephile. K.O. always brings the pain. Uh, he also talked about, when we discussed baseball movies, the fact that how much I love Eight Men Out, I was worried that K.O. wouldn't like it. But he is also a big fan of the movie. So then Buster only had me on his Baseball Tonight podcast. Check out that pod, by the way. Subscribe, rate, and review. And he had me on because it was the 30th anniversary of Bull Durham recently. So he had me on to discuss my favorite baseball movies. So that's right now on the Cinephile feed. If you haven't listened, check it out. But number one is Eight Men Out for me. I went back and watched it after I talked to Buster because I hadn't seen it in at least 10, 15 years. And thankfully, the film holds up. I love the cast. Uh, John Cusack is Buck Weaver. Charlie Sheen is Hap Felsch, particularly David Strathairn, an excellent Eddie Seacott. As you heard K.O. mention when he met David Strathairn, he said, you can play Eddie Seacott and Eddie Morrow because he was in Good Night and Good Luck. Uh, John Mahoney is Kid Gleason. And as I tweeted, there's a Harry Kirkchen at the end. That last scene, uh, when Shoeless Joe is playing in like a semi-pro league, there's a shot of a Harry Kirkchen. So I don't know if that's any relation to Tim Kirchner, but hey, eight men out. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I have the 20th anniversary. I really recommend it because they actually have a documentary on there, part one and part two. And John Sales talks about how faithful he was when he made the movie. He literally had the book and he had the box scores of each game. So he had, could really replicate plays. And this is before this became de rigueur, but you actually had a baseball camp because I, I hired a guy for 10 days. I taught Davis Strath there and had to throw a knuckleball. Um, you know, Charlie Sheen can actually throw. He goes, he's got a hose from right field. He was great. And DB Sweeney had played a little bit of baseball, but he goes, he was so good. We actually did a tracking shot where he could actually do a triple and we, the camera followed him the whole time. He goes, it was at least 30 takes. Um, but we actually got it and he goes, that was pretty cool. And I think the baseball holds up. Sales said when he shows the movie to old Hall of Famers, they always say, man, I like to face that pitching. And he goes, listen, you're never going to get actors who can throw 90 miles an hour. Uh, but for what it is, you know, dead ball era, the gloves are the size of your hand and the fact that the guys would grease up the balls and just that era. Even, even he said the fact this was pre CGI in 1988. So they only had 3,000 fans. They had to figure out the lighting and where they were shooting and to move the fans around. Okay. This is going to be a play at third base. Let's put the fans along the third base line because they couldn't fill all of uh, Comiskey Park as they were trying to recreate it. So if you've never seen Eight Men Out, please do check it out. Uh, Buster's top 10. I believe he had Feel the Dreams, uh, was high up as it was for me. I had it at number two. Uh, and then we went from there. So on that tip, I'm going to release my favorite father-son movies. Not only the baseball movies, of course, Feel the Dreams, but Father's Day just happened. So I'll give you my top ten Father's Day movies here in just a second. We've also got Ben Lewin, who's the director of a baseball movie. The Catcher was a spy starring Paul Rudd, Paul Giamatti, Jeff Daniels, and many others. And that'll be in theaters this week. Incredibles 2. This is the good news. It's a sequel that's 14 years in the making, but I actually thought it was very good. And the fear here was this. I thought the first one was good, but I did not think it was The Incredibles. 
as I tweeted about the second one, it's not like The Incredibles. It's more like The Very Good. You know, it's a fun movie. It's well done. But the best part about it is Brad Bird knows his way around action. Like, it's rare to think of a Pixar film that's loaded with great action sequences, but that's what The Incredibles 2 has going for it. I mean, the immediate, it's kind of like James Bond. You think of James Bond movies, what always happens? The opening scene has to be a great scene. Frenetic action, helter-skelter, high stakes, how is Bond going to escape? They, they always hit the ground running. Same thing with The Incredibles 2. Hit the ground running right out of the gate. And the ending particularly is fantastic with lots of, of fireworks and pyrotechnics. Now, the story itself, I think, is a little bit behind the curve. I mean, it's meant to... Uh, be about gender politics and the fact that now the father, played by Craig T. Nelson, is looking after the kids, while Elastigirl, the mom, played by Holly Hunter, she's the one springing into action to save the day. And the real challenge for Mr. Incredible is to raise three kids by himself. Now, I think there's been enough stories about doting dads and, like, reversing gender roles and, and how tough it is for this beleaguered father who hasn't slept enough and the mom is the hero. So I don't think that story was particularly fresh. Brad Bird said he waited over a decade to make this movie, so I can't imagine he was sitting on that idea over a decade because it's not particularly new or original. But because of the fact he's got, uh, like I said, such skill when it comes to the action sequences and a really good voice cast, Bob Odenkirk's there, Catherine Keener as well, among others, Jonathan Banks. It's a really fun movie. I don't think for Pixar it's elite level. I think it's second-tier Pixar, which may sound like a backhanded compliment, but I think is actually just a fair assessment of the film. But ultimately, I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Obviously, if you have kids, they're going to really enjoy this film. It's certainly appropriate for all ages. And like I said, there's plenty of entertainment to entertain all. And what has been a rather lean summer, I think, so far, Incredibles 2 definitely hits the mark. I did not see Tag. I didn't see Ocean's 8. So we can skip those right now. I would like to mention our boy Ben Lyons. He's going to chip in soon with the Lions Den. He interviewed Kevin Connolly. Great news for Ben. Go check out Lion's Den. His podcast has been resuscitated. He had this for years, and now it's back. I think it has a home on Podcast One, but, but look it up under uh, iTunes and go find it and listen to it because he had Kevin Connolly on, who's the director of Gotti, also played E on the show Entourage. Say this for Gotti, and I, I hope somebody goes and sees it. Jake Del Moro here works at ESPN. I'm trying to recruit him to go see it. He just had a bout of kidney stones, and I said nothing can be worse than kidney stones. As bad as this movie may be, as atrocious as it is, it cannot be worse than the pain you just felt. So I think that's a decent enough sell. Gotti, with 23 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, currently has a 0% rating. I want that to sink in for a second. Rotten Tomatoes goes from 0 to 100. 60% and above is a fresh rating. 0% for Gotti, starring John Travolta. I mean, it looks awful. And I have no interest in seeing it, but I was like, well, there's going to be some Travolta fans. Maybe he's hamming it up. I love mob movies. It's my favorite genre. I'd probably be in for the Ligotti movie. Zero percent. It's unbelievable. Like we, Ben has to do another podcast now with Kevin Collins. Yeah, thanks for coming on. By the way, what's your reaction to the fact that we got zero percent? Here's some of these reviews. Adam Graham of the Detroit News. Gotti tries too hard to cram too much information into a small space. You come away learning almost nothing about the man other than the filmmakers feel he was a pretty stand-up guy. Chris Nashawadi of Entertainment Weekly. It's not a good movie, but the blame can't be laid at stars Ferragamo shod feet. Johnny Oleksinski, New York Post. I'd rather wake up next to a severed horse head than ever watch Gotti again. Like, I might have to see it. Just to, like it's, it's worse than Gili. Like, I, got, I have to sit through this thing. Gotti, absolutely terrible. So we got that under control. All right, Father's Day movies. Dan, Ricky, you guys chime in as well. We're in a different space here. I can't see their faces. I can only see their foreheads, but they'll, they'll know when to chime in. Honorable mentions, just for Dan Stanzik and our considerable Irish-American constituency, in the name of the Father. I can look at you and I can see the truth staring me in the face. Boys in the Hood, Furious Styles, honorable mention. 
Who doesn't love Lawrence Fishburne sniffing his son, Cuba Gooding Jr.? To Kill a Mockingbird, Gregory Peck, Integrity Personified. Those are the honorable mentions. Relationship with him and Scout. Number 10 is Lion King. It's the Bambi moment of, of all time, all right? This is our Bambi moment when Mufasa gets killed by Scar. Long live the king. I mean, it's obviously sad and upsetting, but it's a great father-son story. Mufasa passing on his great tradition to Simba, who eventually becomes a lion. I had to get an animated film in here. Father-son story. Number 10 is Lion King. Number 9, Road to Perdition. One of Scott Van Pelt's favorite movies. He quotes it all the time, particularly the line, there are only murderers in this room, which is a great line. I love the cinematography. Conrad Hall, the great cinematographer. Passman knows what I'm talking about. Last scene, the rain tableau. Newman's there. Beautiful. Exquisite. Movie people love it. Not many people hate it, but I love the ending of Road to Perdition. Hanks, a rare bad guy role. I thought he was excellent as the gangster. I mean, he's a bad guy that he's a gangster, but he's a good guy gangster, so it's kind of like treading the line here. But it's not like, you know, Tom Cruise in Collateral, let's say. But Hanks and Road to Perdition, very good. Good father and son Before story. you move on, you're off to a rough start here. What do you mean? You I got, got top, top, No, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, top 10 father-son movies, spoiler alert for everybody, the fathers die in 10 and 9. <laughs> So That's I hope the start. list gets better. Listen, we're looking at tragedy here, okay? It doesn't have to be heartwarming. It's a memorable father-son story. Number nine was Road to Perdition. Number eight, well, okay, this one, you, you won't be, you'll be okay. A Bronx Tale. Robert De Niro's character does not die in the movie through the course of it. Chaz Palminteri, of course, wrote the script, wrote the play, wanted to star in it, plays the role of Sonny. Is it better to be loved or feared? I would say fear, because fear lasts longer than love. De Niro always has played so many characters, but I love this role as a dad, meaning for the best for his son, Calodro. The scene where he slaps him, tries to talk some sense to him, then feels bad. It feels reproachful. I didn't mean to hit you. Great. Love a Bronx tale. Number eight. Number seven, Capturing the Freedmans. Got to get a documentary in here. One of my favorite documentaries, those that remember the best films of the century know that I had Capturing the Freedmans in there. It's a father charged with sexual assault of... Young boys, who apparently they had in their computer science class, Arnold Friedman, his son Jesse Friedman, also implicated. This is not a warm father-son story, but it is a breathtaking one, and it certainly is one that is unforgettable. Capturing the Freedmans, sometimes the sins of the father can be put upon the son. Number seven is capturing the Freedmans. Number six, affliction. All right, Stanzik may have a point. These are rather bleak. Number six is affliction. This is about an alcoholic father played by James Coburn. Won an Oscar for the role. Also one of my favorite movies from 1998. Uh, Coburn plays an alcoholic father who unfortunately passes along the alcoholism and that sense of violence to his son, Nick Nolte, who in the film's cataclysmic finale erupts with those same emotions that his father had. Okay, now we're going to get a little sweeter. Number five is Field of Dreams. <laughs> About time. <laughs> uh, hey, Dad, want to have a catch? Uh, double check this. Does he say, because the expression you would say to your father is, want to play catch. In Field of Dreams, he says, want to have a catch. I think have a catch works. Because I remember somebody said to me, because that's the only problem in the movie. You wouldn't, you're talking to Mark Stanzik. He says, Dan, do you want to, do you want to play catch? He I mean, say, do at the point in catch? time when I'm playing catch with Mark Stanzik, that movie's <laughs> already out. So maybe it just came into the vernacular. Yeah, right. But you back me up here. Play catch is what you would say. Let's have a catch. You're, all right, fine. Let's have a catch then. That scene alone, wonderful. Obviously a story about fathers and sons, redemption, uh, overcoming the ghosts of the past. I mean, the scene where Costner's in the bus, and he's telling the story about how he said something awful to his dad. He said, I could never respect anybody whose hero was a felon. His hero was a criminal because his dad's hero was a shoeless Joe Jackson. He said, he never spoke to his dad again after that. You can feel the sadness and the longing and the um, 
the bitterness that he feels towards his dad and it also a frustration, the fact that he could not mend fences properly. And then, of course, the movie's magical finale, he's able to do that. Feel the dreams. Number four. All right, Passmore, let's get highfalutin. Bicycle thieves. Yes. Vittorio De Sica, one of the great stories of all time, the height of Italian neorealism. It is elementally simple. It is a story about a father and a son who is searching for his bicycle because he needs that for his occupation and to survive for his family. But as the story betrays, it is not the bicycle thief, it is bicycle thieves. The father then has to resort to his own desperate means for economic salvation. It is an incredibly influential film. You ask anybody who loves movies, they will tell you all about Tosica and Bicycle Thieves, Italian neorealism from 1953. Go look it up if you haven't seen it. Number three, I abandoned my son. Say it again. I abandoned my son. This is my son and my partner, H.W., there will be blood. Number three, my favorite movie of the century. Epic father and son story. Did he actually love H.W.? Or did he only care for this orphan boy because he wanted to manipulate people in his goal of getting oil and money? That is the dilemma of Daniel Plainview. I'd like to say I think he had some emotions for H.W., at least early on. By the end, obviously, he's a completely rotten man and he's lacking any sort of humanity. But I think at some point he did have a glimmer of love for his son. He was not only manipulating him, but... It's an incredible film. Great father and son story. <laughs> there will be blood. Number two, Life is Beautiful. Speaking of Italian films, just watch this again the other day. Wonderful story. It won the runner-up prize of the Cannes Film Festival, the Grand Prix. Roberto Benigni won an Oscar for his performance as Best Actor. The film also won for Best Foreign Film. It is a story about a father and son stuck in a concentration camp, both as Jews during World War II and the father, rather than letting his son know what is the awful, ugly, revolting truth, convinces him this is all part of a game. And if they win this game, they get to get a tank. And then everybody is in here on this game. This is elaborate chess piece. Rather than shield, uh, rather than tell his son the awful, ugly truth, he shields him with this rather, what can feel to be preposterous, but ultimately rather heartwarming way. There's one scene where Joshua asks him, you know, because I, I heard one of the other people talking, they're making us into soap. They're making us into buttons. They're going to throw us in an oven. And Benini, you know, he's obviously horrified that his son knows the truth, but he immediately just reverses direction. He's so clever, you know, in the way that his dad is manipulating the situation around him. He says, no, no, that's what they're just saying. It's all part of the game. They don't know. We're going to hear him win the game. Um, that last scene where Benini gets walked towards his death is heartbreaking because uh, rather than betray any sort of emotion and sadness, instead he sees his son hiding and he winks at him as he's doing this funny walk. And then the goes and gets murdered. It's absolutely heartbreaking. It's a beautiful story. That last scene where Joshua, he gets picked up by an American on the tank, and he runs and sees his mom. He says, we won, we won. The beautiful score. Uh, it's tough not to get choked up when you watch Life is Beautiful. It's a gorgeous film. It's a wonderful father and son story. And number one, The Godfather. Yeah, the ultimate father and son story. The Corleones. King Lear. Who do I pick? Michael, I never wanted you for this business. Sonny's a hothead. Fredo's weak. Small time. Michael's the one who's cold-blooded, and yet Vito Corleone does not want Michael to go into the family business. One of the best scenes of the entire film is that scene um, outside the garden. I mean, think about this. Pacino and Brando, two of the greatest actors of all time. We didn't know it at that point. We knew Brando, obviously, was brilliant, but Al was only 32. He thought he was going to get fired from the movie, and yet they have a conversation which is very much about fathers and sons. Brando's reminding him of what to do, how to do things. He says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I told you that. I forgot, I forgot. And Pacino, in a very lovely manner, the son now, in a paternal gesture, taps his dad's hand and goes, I got it, Pop. We'll get there, Pop. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. It's not only, I mean, it works on, on meta levels because you're thinking about what Brando Pacino mean, but just as a father and son reflecting on life, giving some advice to each other, the son wanting to take over the mantle of being the father's business in a rather cold-blooded, ruthless manner, 
it's sweet in its own really manner. So uh, here we go. Top ten once again. So the number one was The Godfather. Number two is Life is Beautiful. Three is There Will Be Blood. Four is Bicycle Thieves. Five is Field of Dreams. Six is Affliction. Seven is Capturing the Freedmen's. Eight is A Bronx Tale. Nine is Road to Perdition. Ten is Lion King. Honorable Mentions, Boys in the Hood, To Kill a Mockingbird, In the Name of the Father. All yours, buddy. You got one glaring omission <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. that I just thought of. There's probably more. He got game. No! no, 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 no. Denzel Washington, Ray Allen, a Spike Lee joint. Big that, state. Yeah, worth an honorable mention. All right, we'll bump off. Father and father. son playing one-on-one in basketball. Come on. Dad's a felon. It's dark. And a little cheesy thing. He throws a basketball. I mean, it's a little, the ending's a little weak. Fast back to him. It's a good movie. Denzel's really good in it. I like the fact he's playing a guy who's villainous and angry and he's got lots of issues. The ending's a little. It doesn't matter that the ending's a little. It's a father and son story that is accurate, and it's a good movie, but it's not better than uh, Road to Perdition. No, it's not better than Road to Perdition. Which one would you bump off? Lion King? You don't like Mufasa? No, I like Lion King. <laughs> yes, I knew it. It's listen. It's worthy. Of, you are. It's worthy of being mentioned. You're absolutely. Right. He got game is a good father and son movie, particularly for our people listening. Passport, you have any? Ooh, you like yeah, to, he does. Oh, he got a few. Okay, Finding Nemo. Yeah, that's another one. I, I did see that. I went through a list and I said, yeah, good one. Albert Brooks. Filled with neuroses, anxiety. You're right. That could also we could replace Lion King to get the animated movie. That's probably more of a true father son story. I do like Finding Nemo a lot, and much better than Finding Dory. One other issue with this list, as I was going through it, it's all father and son movies. I mean, I, ha- I have to do a list now, like father daughter movies, because obviously there's been a few over the years. I get Kill a Mockingbird, Gregory Peck, and Scout a little bit, but uh, these are obviously generally you have a lot of father son stories in Hollywood. So, what are you going to do? There's a list. Tweet us, cinephile ESPN. Let me know what the other glaring omissions were, which ones you have real issues with. Give us some love for Bicycle Thieves. I want at least a couple of tweets from people going, hey, Bicycle Thieves is a classic. That's what I'm talking about. Let's just get here on Cinephile. All right, line's done in a second. Every man momentarily. Ben Lewin, the director of The Catcher Was a Spy, coming up right now. Okay, guys, here's the deal. 66% of men lose their hair by age 35. Thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. Is that hairline slowly starting to move backwards? Any bald spots yet? How will you feel a year from now if it's business as usual up there? I ask you, do you want a bald spot to pop up or you want to do something about it first? You want your hairline to recede or you want to do something about it first? Why do guys turn to weird solutions or do nothing when they can turn to medicine and science? 4hims.com is the solution. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and other wellness supplements for men. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. Well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. No snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. Prescription solutions backed by science. No waiting room. No awkward doctor visits. Save hours by going to 4 It's so easy. You answer a few quick questions. The doctor will review and prescribe you. Products are shipped directly to your door. So order now. My listeners get a trial month of Hims for just $5 today, right now while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to Hims.com slash Cinephile. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Cinephile. C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. For Hims.com slash Cinephile. Geico presents oh, yet another voicemail from your roommate. Hi. So, about the kitchen. Turns out, when there's a grease fire, you're not supposed to throw water on it. <laughs> Who would have known, right? Anyways, the fire department is here, and it's totally cool. Give me a call back when you get a chance. 
The Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if danger is your roommate's middle name. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. As I mentioned, I saw the film The Catcher Was a Spy. Didn't get a chance to see it at the Sundance Film Festival, but now have seen it. It'll be in theaters this week. And Ben Lewin is the director. Kind of to join us right now on Cinephile. Ben, thank you so much for the time. It's a great pleasure, and I hope you enjoyed the movie. As a lifelong baseball fan, Ben, I was amazed this movie had never been made before. I remember reading about Mo Berg years ago, and when I met Paul Rudd at Sundance, I think that's the first thing I said to him. How has this movie not been made before? And that's a question I posed to you. How did anybody not make this movie before you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they've been trying to make it for uh, uh, 25 years or so, uh, but... It's a difficult story to tell. I mean, Moberg's life was complicated and didn't follow a plot. Um, so that, uh, you, you know, it wasn't an easy story to tell, and all credit to the screenwriter. Um, so uh, here we are at last. I'm glad we're the first to do it. Oh, no question about it, and because the story is ripe. It has all the elements of suspense, and I give you credit as a director. You clearly are tapping into those old-school espionage films, and I love the look of the film and the production design, and I think all those elements come together. The score is very good to, to create that sense of intrigue. I think that clearly you had a vision for this film, and it's going to appeal to people who love that genre. What was it like for you in trying to get that period detailed? Was there other films that you focused on, or how were you able to capture that sense of atmosphere? Um, I, I think there were. I, I mean, the uh, the cinematographer and I, Andre uh, Parrick, um, spent a lot of time together looking at films that we uh, felt were a kind of inspiration, uh, notably The Third Man. I and, love that uh, film. Orson Welles, amazing. Carol Reed, yeah, I love The Third Man. Um, and I think, you know, there were scenes, for example, in The Conformist, which we uh, used as a model for how how we were going to shoot certain scenes in Catcher as well. So there was a really a nod towards that old kind of um, film noir style, although I'd hope it's not too stylized. I mean, ultimately, we're telling a story and not making a painting. Absolutely. And Paul Rudd playing a baseball player. He's a lifelong baseball fan. He's a Kansas City Royals fan. When I, I saw him at Sundance, I said, what a thrill must have been for you. And he said, well, yeah, to be at Fenway Park and to recreate those scenes. Um, what, what was that like, like for you? A shooting temple at? Fenway Park. People uh, treat it like a religious place. Yeah, I, I was going to say, what was it like for you shooting at Fenway Park? Did you have uh, oh, the chills of Paul? Yeah, it was. I mean, people uh, kind of following us every move, saying, "Don't put your foot where, where the gravel meets the grass." And really, um, you could have performed open heart surgery on the field there. <laughs> it's sacred ground, particularly for all those Boston yes, Red Sox. Yes, absolutely fans. sacred ground. And and I, you know, I felt like a kind of a newcomer. I mean, cricket was my thing, so baseball is a sort of a new adventure for me. Yeah, and there's not a ton of baseball scenes in the film, but is that something that you thought about and said, you know what, this we're not making a baseball film. That's obviously his background. We're focusing on Moberg post baseball. Well, I, I, I mean, the, the, you could have made several movies about Mo Berg, but I think the one that made sense to us was his transition from a baseball player into a spy, that kind of process of reinventing himself um, that that really was uh, his, um, 
his major trick in life that he, he there, there were several Mobergs and none of them wanted to conform to what uh, you know people expected of him. He was yeah. the ultimate nonconformist. Yeah, and I think what I liked most about your film, Ben, is the fact that his character in Paul's performance, he's so enigmatic that you never really get a feel of who this Moberg guy is. And I think that's effective, and that's why he was able to become a spy. Because right, he's a baseball player, he's a mediocre catcher, you know, hanging on a little, a little too long, perhaps end of his career. But a brilliant linguist, uh, clearly a smart guy, interested in the war effort. And so as outrageous as it might seem, if I told someone there was a baseball player who was a spy, when you watch the film, you say, well, this guy was very good at concealing himself. And that's probably why he was so effective in that realm, right? Yeah, I think that he he took a lot of the um, secrets of baseball into spycraft with him and had that ability to kind of read a situation uh, which is, uh, you know, a catcher's stock in trade. And, you know, in, in this case, he was reading a situation about the atom bomb and the, the future of the world, which was slightly different whether someone's going to run or not. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, for Paul himself, listen, he's obviously a talented comedian. He's very likable on screen. It's not that Moberg isn't likable, but obviously he's a little bit more shadowy and he's got different motivations. What was it like uh, casting him? What was your decision with, with casting a guy like Paul Rudd? Well, I, I think that um, Moberg, in a way, was a remote and and uh, aloof character. Um, and I didn't want him to have that kind of distant quality. I thought what Paul brought was a sort of a naturalism and a sort of, you know, this is a real guy. Um, I never feel the acting with Paul, whether he's playing comedy or or uh, Ant-Man or anything. I just feel he is what he is and very relatable. And I thought, well, that's something you need to bring to this character. You know, otherwise, you're not going to get a sense of who he is. At least with Paul, you you know, there was that sort of reality about him and and the ability to be both enigmatic and real. We're talking with Ben Lewin. He is the director of the film The Catcher Was a Spy. Check it out in theaters. Paul Giamatti, Ben, is one of my favorite actors. He plays the doctor in this movie. It's a, he, got, he offers a bit of comedic relief. I haven't seen him uh, play a role with an accent in a while. Tell me about Giamatti. Oh, um, you know, the, the, the accent part was uh, really interesting because, in fact, the character he played had a very thick, almost unintelligible accent. And it was, uh, you know, Paul was very, very skillful in getting across the idea that, you know, this man was a foreigner, he was a Dutch Jew, um, without actually turning it into a caricature. And he's one of the most fun guys to work with, honestly. It just, um, uh, he takes it very, very seriously, but makes it seem like a party. <laughs> that's such a nice compliment to be able to pay an actor. You're right. If you can, if you can make the process fun, that's exactly what you want. Yeah, and I thought he was fabulous in the battle scene, you know, this yeah. guy who just didn't belong in the middle of a battle. A couple other actors, really talented. I, I don't see enough movies with Guy Pierce. He's always good. I liked him in the film. And Jeff Daniels as well, particularly that scene uh, where he asks Mo about his sexual orientation, I thought was such a good scene. Tell me about Jeff Daniels. Yes. Um, well, uh, you, you know, Jeff um, kind of... Uh, uh, arrives um, and you kind of, he has a slightly intimidating presence. Um, and then somehow within about 10 minutes, I think, oh, 
this this is just an ordinary guy. It's not going to be difficult to work with him at all, which it wasn't. I mean, he gave me a very, very easy time of it. Took direction beautifully. Uh, I mean, you know, I'd only have to say something once and in a subtle way, and he would really moderate his performance like, you know, a musician. Uh, I mean, I was kind of, in a way, sitting at the feet of a master. It was quite an honor. Oh, that's very generous. I'm sure he felt the same way about you. When you're adapting a book, Ben, and like you said, Robert Rodot obviously wrote the screenplay, but was there any challenges? I mean, listen, you're, you're, you're trying to make it, I suppose, as faithful as a true story, but... You can take artistic license. You can take creative liberty. Obviously, it's a fiction film. It's not a documentary. Was there any shortcuts that you felt you had to take just in terms of the economics of the story, or was it as faithful as you could make it possibly be? Um, I think that there are huge gaps in Mo's life, and you had to kind of create stuff to fill those gaps. Um, but I, I, within the historical period that we chose, in other words, the the... Um, the end of his baseball career or the twilight of his baseball career to the confrontation with Heisenberg, which was, you know, his his most dramatic um, moment during the war, um, was uh, a, a, within that time frame, we tried to be as accurate as possible um, and also used other sources like Moe's OSS file. I read all the letters that his girlfriend Estella wrote to him during the war. Um, I, I mean, it is a balancing act, but this is the first time that in this kind of, on this scale, this piece of history has been told. So you do feel a, a certain amount of responsibility. I don't know whether it's a matter of getting it right, but certainly in in using... Uh, what resources you have intelligently. That's a good way of pointing it. The Catcher was a spy as a film opening in theaters this weekend. Before I let you go, Ben, I love the movie The Sessions. We had Helen Hunt on Cinephile recently. You directed <laughs> that movie. That was such a good film, and Helen Hunt said what she was really appreciative of it was that so many films in Hollywood can focus on violence, and they don't care how hyper-violent they are, but sexuality becomes this taboo subject. And this was a really interesting story about one woman using her sensuality and her sexuality for positive means, and the relationship with her yes. and John Hawks. I mean, this could be very serious territory, but I thought there was real tenderness and real humor in that movie as well. Tell me about the sessions and what that was like making that film. I thought it was excellent. Um, it was a life-changing event for me. Um, I mean, we made it um, uh, on the, the smell of an oil rag, and it was really a, um, an expression of dedication uh, on everyone's part who was involved in that movie. So, uh, I mean, one of the really gratifying parts of it was that it was both a labor of love um, uh, that meant something to everyone involved, um, and it paid off. It was lightning in a bottle, and and people really appreciated it for what it was. So um, I, I felt that above all, its simplicity reached people, that sense of a sex-positive message, that sex could be both funny and challenging. Um, I don't know. I, 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 it's, it's probably my happiest filmmaking memory, making that movie. Oh, that's wonderful. Check out the sessions, people, if you haven't seen it. The Catcher Was a Spy in theaters this Friday. Ben Lewin is the director. Different, isn't it? <laughs> What's that, sorry? 
it's different. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about that. But that's a good thing in this world. You know that. If you can make something different, that's what we're looking for. Thanks so much for the time, Ben. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Edmund. Thank you so much. Want to go to the 2018 ESPYs? How about going as the guest of this year's host, Danica Patrick? Make a donation to the V Foundation for Cancer Research, and you could win a VIP ESPYs trip and the chance to meet Danica Patrick at a rehearsal before the show. Go to ebay.com slash ESPN to donate for your chance to win. For official rules, go to ebay.com slash ESPN. A Hollywood career spanning decades. And the tales of Tinseltown are told here. Inside the Lion's Den with Ben Lyons. Happy belated Father's Day, Adnan. Happy belated Father's Day. I remember sitting around uh, the couch watching the Eagles win the NFC Championship game with you at Sundance, and you said, I got to call my sons. And my, my beautiful wife, Mariah, and we talk about having kids, and she says, you know what? That's going to be you someday. And I just thought, wow, what a, what a great moment that must have been like for you as a father to connect with your kids through through uh through sports so i look forward to to fatherhood down the road for those types of moments in my own life but thinking about uh my dad who as you know is a movie critic and and part of the perks of growing up the son of a movie critic is that you get to take your friends to advanced screenings so when you're 12 13 years old this is this is high currency amongst your peer group um so everybody i remember thinking back to a to a story um about in 93 or 94, everybody wanted to see Beverly Hills Cop 3. Everybody was wanting to see Axel Foley, and I got an advanced screening of Beverly Hills Cop 3, and I had my dad work it out with the studio where he could take a whole bunch of us. I think there was like 10 of us, guys and girls, were at that age where one or two guys, you know, a, go, or a girl go on a date, so the entire friend group goes too, right? So I think I'm on a date with Julia Nasser, um, New York City legend. I'm like 13 years old. We're going to see Beverly Hills Cop 3. There's 10 of us. We get to the screening. We get to the theater. My dad messed it up the wrong date. The, all the, the only other screening that night at the theater was for Remains of the Day, an upstairs-downstairs drama starring Sir Anthony Hopkins and I believe Emma Thompson. I no longer uh, was dating Julia Nasser after that evening. Several of my friends uh, fell asleep during the screening. When you're telling a bunch of 13-year-olds they're going to go see Beverly Hills Cop 3 and they see Remains of the Day instead, that's a tough one. So, Dad, uh, uh, you've made it up to me over the years, but I'm still a little upset over, over that one, i got to be honest. So, happy Father's Day, a story from my relationship with my dad here on Cinephile in the Lions Den. He's just an average man with an average, average life. life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost, playing to my, my strength. strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every, every man. man. <laughs> so the best one so far, every man. It's tough to top along, came Polly. I love you, man, was in the mix as well. Clearly, Dan Stanzik has shown his affinity for George Clooney. I mean, if we... We ever get Clooney in here? That's a serious man crush. And Michael Clayton gets some love. So I'm curious, what direction you go this week for every man? Not only Michael Clayton, also up in the air. Don't yes. forget, every month in the Sanzik household, George Clooney month. <laughs> if you look closely, you can find everything has a weak spot where it can break sooner or later. Fracture, a oh. 2007 legal thriller starring a young Ryan Gosling, Gosling yeah. opposite Anthony Hopkins. 
Hopkins's character, Ted Crawford, discovers that his young, attractive wife is having an affair. So he plans the perfect murder. He comes home early from a business trip, casually confronts her about her infidelity, and then shoots her in the head. He locks himself in the house and refuses to let the police in until the hostage negotiator, Lieutenant Nunnally, who happens to be his wife's secret lover, shows up. Crawford admits to shooting his wife, and after a brief struggle, he's arrested and taken to the station where he signs a confession. Enter Gosling's character, Willie Beecham, an arrogant, hotshot assistant district attorney who has just accepted a position with a corporate law firm. Even though he has one foot out the door, he takes what he thinks is a slam-dunk case because of the verbal and signed confessions. Crawford chooses to represent himself and asks to expedite the trial. The trial begins, and it's made abundantly clear that Beecham is distracted. He's picking out furniture for his new office, going to events for his new firm, and talking a lot with his soon-to-be boss, played by Rosamund Pike, whose character is largely unnecessary. During the trial, Crawford seems like he's not paying attention. He's doodling, not cross-examining any of the witnesses, not objecting to leading questions even when the judge tells him that he might want to object to one. Crawford is slow playing his hand. His lack of legal expertise is part of his strategy. The movie turns when Lieutenant Nunnally, the hostage negotiator, is on the stand. After Beecham walks him through the verbal confession in the house and the signed confession at the station, Crawford finally objects. He not so elegantly points out that Nunnally was sleeping with his wife. In a fit of rage, the lieutenant jumps off the witness stand and tries to attack Crawford. In her chambers, the judge rules out both confessions, and Beecham is given a long weekend to procure more evidence. This is where things started to crack for me. The DA is embarrassed by the courtroom drama, so he takes Beecham off the case. Beecham's new firm, although disappointed by his lack of preparedness, decides to let him start at the firm anyway. For no discernible reason, though, Beecham asks and is allowed to stay on the case, even though he's told that he won't have a job at either place if he loses. The stakes are therefore artificially and impractically raised. Beecham has to put his neck on the line for no reason, and he has no evidence. A moral conundrum, a shocking death, a cameo from the warden in the Shawshank Redemption, and a light bulb moment that's way too on the nose all ensue. The playful back and forth between Gosling and Hopkins is what breathes life into the film. They are opposites, one old, one young, and they are adversaries. But they almost like each other. The competition, the nature of a criminal trial where there is one winner and one loser is enjoyable to them. They're like poker players check-raising one another, looking for tells and determined to walk away with all of the chips. The suave bravado employed by Gosling, who was just 27 when the film came out, pairs nicely with the cerebral but chilling Hopkins, who still has some of that evil genius residue from The Silence of the Lambs. Although the movie is broken in a few places, it's at least 10 minutes too long, Rosamund Pike's character again, overwritten, unnecessary, and the creation of stakes is flimsy at best. The concept of a murder without any evidence, combined with the lead performances, holds everything together. I liked it a lot when it came out, but it was not nearly as good upon a repeat viewing. Two and a half stars for your everyman. Yes! I haven't even thought about Fractures since it came out in 2007. I'm fairly certain I'd seen it. Once you start describing the plot, I said, okay, I've definitely seen the movie. I do like Gosling. I like the fact you mentioned it's broken in parts. Pun intended. 
obviously. Yeah. It's like but, 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, both audience score and critic score. But you're right. With that kind of cash, you'd say Gosling, Hopkins, Roseman Pike, Legal Thriller. All right. That, that's a gimme. That's 85% Rotten Tomatoes. Three and a half Maple Leafs. And it's like, hmm. If you haven't noticed, I'm a big concept guy on movies. Like, I love Inception, but but you could argue that the concept is much better than the film. I like intriguing plots where you're like, oh, wow, how is this going to play out? Gone, baby, gone. Yeah. Concept film. Love it. (laughs) Bashmore, your thoughts on Fracture? I'm sure you've seen it a long time ago. like, Never saw Fracture. Never saw Fracture. That one slipped through the cracks. All right, well, give us your thoughts on Fracture. Pun intended. Yeah, (laughs) Tweet a cinephile at ESPN. Let us know what you think about uh, Fracture. We did get a tweet the other day. I think someone really liked up in the air. I said, well, it's all Dan Stanton. Don't tweet me. You can tweet Dan uh, and find him on Twitter. All right. That was every man. There's no in defense of, but I did ask Passmore to <laughs> use Spawn in defense of. He's not going to do a formal review, but you did go back and revisit it, Ricky. What did you think? So it's on Hulu, as you mentioned, on a streaming suggestion last episode, and I did go back and watch it. It does not hold up at all. Um, there, there is a few things that are still good. You, you mentioned Leguizamo's performance. Yeah. But it kind of goes, uh, hand in hand with how corny everything was about this movie and how over the top. It's over the top. Yeah. It's extremely over the top. Right. However, it's not the, it's not always the good fun over the top that you want to go back and rewatch. There's just a lot of, it's just unrefined. And it's a lot of it is in the, the CG, which was, uh, upon research, was very rushed. They actually didn't get a lot of the last, you know, final edits of the CG until weeks before the movie was even released. And they ballooned their budget to add the CG in. And you look back on it, even in, by 1997 standards, it's terrible. Like it's wow. abhorrent. It's, it's, I can't even. Good use of abhorrent. It, I, I can't say how bad it is without being censored. But there were some, a few just fun spots about it. Like I said, Legozamo's performance, there's moments of, of, uh, an up and coming Michael Jai White, which we see him later in his career doing Black Dynamite, which plays very well into the parodying exploitation, black exploitation films of the seventies. And he's got a new one coming out, which I, I'm really excited for. He's kind of found that voice in, in parody and satire. Uh, but yeah, rewatching it, just, it's not very good. All right, so that is uh, there is no indefensive spawn. Apparently, it's dreadful. By the way, my cousin's side just sent this to me. Gotti's user reviews on Rotten Tomatoes were artificially manipulated to be used in their marketing strategy. Gotti has a unique score of zero percent. It has a really good seventy-seven percent audience score. Looking at it, it has over sixty-nine hundred user reviews, which is an insane number for a movie that opened to a miserable one point seven million dollars on five hundred screens. And so, it really can't be overlooked. Demonstrates a pathetic try at salvaging what is a terrible movie. It also shows how easy it is to manipulate these review sites. So please don't just look at numbers when deciding if a movie is worth your money, but listen to some trusted reviewers. They falsified the user reviews for Gotti and Rotten Tomatoes. Hoping people would look at that rather than the critic reviews, which is 0%. That is Jake Delmore just popped in here. As I mentioned, it's a great job on baseball tonight. He just went through kidney stones. He said it's the most excruciating pain you can imagine. He's going to go see Gotti on Friday. So the next cinephile, we are going to have a review of Gotti. I'm so excited now for this review. I cannot wait to hear it. That will be on the next podcast. We're also going to have, fingers crossed, Bo Burnham. He is a really funny comedian, and he's made a terrific film. It's called Eighth Grade. It got a lot of buzz at a Sundance. Uh, they were kind of to send me the movie. I'm amazed at how well he was able to see the world of an adolescent girl in eighth grade middle school. My middle school is hell. Cannot wait to talk to Bo Burnham on the next cinephile. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. 
Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.